Hello, protocols, packets, and programs. Since today is the 13th, add the 13th floor to your list of cybersecurity movies. It came out the same year as The Matrix, and both deal as simulations as a stylish menace, born of green fonts off a black screen. The 13th floor was even based on a sci-fi novel from the 60s, which posited the use of simulectronics for marketing research. Of course, neither captured the actual reality of virtual reality like the metaverse. After all, the movies embellished things like dying while connected and avatars having legs. Which means this week we chat with Josh Grossman about the OWASP ASVS project, what to expect in version 5, and what it's like to run an OWASP project. In the news segment, Loom provides transparency, GitHub requires 2FA, flaws in reference code, notes on a career ladder, and more. Jack in and stay tuned for Application Security Weekly. This is Security Weekly. For security professionals, by security professionals. It's the show to learn the latest tools, techniques, and processes necessary to understand DevOps, application security, and cloud security. Your trusted source for the latest application security news. It's time for Application Security Weekly. Your organization is building and updating business-critical web applications faster than ever. And with so much pressure to move fast, you may find yourself making trade-offs between innovation and security. Now you can build fast without sacrificing security with Invicti, the zero-noise application security platform that helps your dev, sec, and ops teams work together to secure every website, web app, and API. With unparalleled accuracy, coverage, and automation, Invicti scales like no other AppSec solution. Invicti, AppSec, with zero noise. Visit securityweekly.com slash Invicti. This is episode 232, recorded March 13th, 2023. I'm your host, Mike Shima. I'm here with John Kinsella. Hello, John. Howdy. I'm uh, fighting off a cold while I'm trying not to sneeze on you over at the internet. Oh dear, no sneezes, no colds. Hope you're feeling better by the end of the interview because we got some fun stuff to talk about. We're also here with Akira Brand. Akira, what are you fighting off today? Oh, the hordes of darkness and evil, clearly. Ah, excellent answer. I should have just known that. That's what you do every week. <laughs> Thank you for joining us. Uh, if you're all for listeners, if you're interested in joining some hordes of darkness and evil, join us at an upcoming official cybersecurity summit in a city near you. This series of one-day, invitation-only, executive-level conferences are designed to educate senior cyber professionals at the, on the latest threat landscape. We are pleased to offer our listeners $100 off admission when you register with the code SECWEEK23. Visit securityweekly.com slash cybersecuritysummit to learn more and register today. Josh Grossman has worked as a consultant in IT and application security and risk for 15 years now, as well as a software developer. He's currently CTO for Bounce Security, where he helps clients improve and get better value from their AppSec processes and provides specialist AppSec advice. His consultancy work has led him to work, speak, and deliver training, both locally and worldwide, including privately for ISACA and Manicode and publicly for OWASP's global AppSec conferences. In his spare time, he, leads, he co-leads the OWASP ASVS project and is on the OWASP Israel chapter board. Hello, Josh. Thank you for joining us. Hi there. Really great to be here. Thanks for having me today. Uh, well, we want to talk about all the spare time you have, the, the OWASP ASVS <laughs> project. Uh, by no means a small yeah. project, and it's been in version 4 for a few years now, but version 5 is coming. So we do want to find out about version 5, but uh, first, maybe tell us a little bit about the ASVS in general and how you came to, to get involved with it. 
Yeah, so the SVS is, uh, I think, a, a really interesting project. I mean, I'm a little bit biased, but uh, it's certainly, yeah, I think, really, really important for you know, the overall goal of, of securing software. I mean, everyone's heard of the OWASP Top 10. Everyone knows about the OWASP Top 10 Risks project. And yeah, that's a great project for building, I guess, awareness about application security issues. But it's sort of a top 10 list. It's sort of 10 items. It's sort of also not 10 items if you dig into it. Um, and it's, you know, it's also sort of bringing problems. It's saying, you know, here, are, here are 10 things you should worry about. Here are 10 problems you're going to have to figure out how to deal with. Um, I guess the ASVS takes a slightly different approach. The ASVS is the Application Security Verification Standard. And the idea is that it brings guidance on how to actually do yeah, security properly, how to build security into applications, what sort of things you should be dealing with. And the idea is it tries to take a, a comprehensive view of that. It tries to say, okay, well, in this category, here are the requirements you want to build into the application in sort of a positive way. Verify that it's doing this, verify that it's doing that. Um, and again, by having this sort of comprehensive view and having this, um, I guess, structured sort of as a standard and also having the, uh, you know, the, the positive aspect, I think it's much more more valuable for developers. But as you say, it is it is quite large. There are quite a lot of requirements. There are indeed. And it does cover, there's obviously overlap too, if the OWASP top 10 is pointing out the problems that, honestly, the same problems we've had since the beginning of the web. Well, yeah. ASVS is likely pointing out here, as you said, it's a bit more prescriptive. It's a bit more guidance about what should we do about logging, authentication, input validation, and so on. With that said, I, you know, I was joking a little bit about uh, the OWASP top 10 being pretty much the same in spirit for 20 years. You know, we still have cross-site scripting, still have SQL injection. So um, how come the OWASP ASVS hasn't fixed that in version 4? What are you going to fix with version 5 so everything becomes secure <laughs> magically? <laughs> so I guess the biggest the biggest challenge with the ASVS is the size. I mean, there's some... Mm. There are some ways in which it's easier to approach it. So it's got three levels whereby you can start off with level one, which has, you know, it's talking about 100 requirements, but it's the idea is, okay, you can start with level one, look at these 100 requirements, <laughs> square those all away, and then move on to level two. You know, even, even that's quite a, 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 big, a big chunk of, of time, a big investment. Um, so I think one of the key um, goals for version five is to try and improve the usability, try and reduce the overall barrier to entry. And just make it easier for organizations to start using this. I mean, yeah, I think that's that's the simple answer. It's very large, it's quite hard to use, just you can't just take it and start using it. It's something that you need to work on gradually. And you know, that's what I'm spending quite a lot of my time on as well at the moment, is finding ways to provide advice about okay, well, how can we focus this for a particular situation or for a particular feature or for a particular organization? How can the organization take this and put it into bite-sized chunks to actually use it? And that's what I've also given a couple of talks about recently, trying to use it to build a, a sustainable process that's yeah, not so large that everyone just falls over in horror every time they see it. <laughs> that, that's interesting because it sounds like a, a major part of the, the the rewrite or revamp, let me just say, version update, is focused on maybe the clarity of requirements or the t or how you're giving the guidance as opposed to we just need absolute new, a ton of new and different guidance. Tell us a bit more about that. About how, basically, it sounds like part of it is a, or a major part is a communication challenge. Yeah, I think you know, maybe this speaks to a, a wider question, but I think often as security people, we may have a inclination to sort of into secure, talking to security jargon or talking things that you know, security people may be very familiar with. But if we really want this to work, if we really want it to actually get picked up and sort of actioned on a regular basis, we need to make sure it's clear to someone who's not necessarily a full-time security person, but rather someone, you know, for, 
a developer, someone who's actually working there on the ground, trying to, to build the software and just wants some idea, okay, what do I need to do about this? And I think part of that is about making the requirements themselves slightly more clear, making them slightly uh, more accessible. I think also part of it is you know, educating organizations about how to use it within their own organization. We don't just say, look, take this, it's this generic document and that will, you know, that, that's it. It's about taking it, the document and, you know, we recommend even you know, forking it for your own use, taking your own copy and start making your own specific, um, adding your own specific guidance, making your own specific changes. Okay, we don't use this technology, so these requirements are never going to be relevant to us, so let's take them out so developers aren't scratching their heads over them. Um, we have specific solutions for these particular requirements, maybe within an organization. Okay, we have a library that does this for you. We don't need to get bogged down, well, how do I do this? We can just put, okay, here's a requirement. Here's the internal library of how to actually use it. Um, and how to actually make sure this happens within the application. Um, and so the idea is to use the ASVS as the basis, but also build around it, you know, customization and specific guidance for that particular organization. Yeah, very much. And it, to, to my mind, it sounds like it's much easier to build a secure SDLC program around the ASVS than around the, the top 10. And even to its credit, the OWASP top 10 has said, he, he, in the recent version, here's how to build up or think about the OWASP top 10 as the seed of a, of a program. But uh, a lot of people early on, I think, just said, oh, we're top 10 compliant, or we have an OWASP top 10 program. <laughs> and I, I think that, you know, the, the, the project leaders probably are cringing a little bit at that. It's sort of a misunderstanding. What are some ways then from the ASVS perspective to get ahead of that, to say, here's either how to use it within a maturity model I think you've been alluding to, or where does it fit within that, that secure SDLC? So you know, if, I, if, I, if I think about it in terms of OWASP projects, I guess the OWASP top 10 is the project that demonstrates we need you know, secure SDLC, that we need to build security into our processes. It doesn't necessarily say how to do that. It just says, look, this is a problem that needs fixing. So at the, the management level, we need to be thinking about this. Um, there's actually another pro project in OWASP called OpenSAM, uh, the Software Assurance Maturity Model, which it speaks more to about the different sort of security activities you might want to build into an SDLC. So that's quite a good basis of saying, okay, what do we actually want to do? Um, how are we doing right now? How do we want to level up overall activities? And then where the ASVS comes in is saying, well, look, we know we need to think about security at the requirement stage. So we can use ASVS as a basis for here are some security requirements for this stage. Here are some things we need to consider alongside you know, the performance requirements and the functional requirements and the user interface requirements. Here are some security requirements we can take into account. And then that can continue through latter stages as well. You know, if we're giving specific guidance on how to do something, then developers might be using that during the implementation stage. If, um, if we have QA that we want to be looking at particular security aspects. And again, they can refer to that and say, well, is this happening? Is that happening? Now, hopefully that's already linked through from, because once we have security requirements, hopefully we now have requirements that QA can test against. But either way, the idea is to use it as a, as a tool, use it as something that can assist with these sort of security activities as we carry on throughout the uh, development process. And, and it is, I've I found it a very helpful tool as well for the, the for what it covers. And as I mentioned, like the, the input validation, encoding, logging is another big one I'll come keep coming back to. But it also, there, there's also an aspect that, uh, you know, the web is still HTML, HTTP, JavaScript. Are, are there other, you know, as you dive into ASVS or you get feedback, are there particular new areas that you're also pulling into this to, to say, here's the, here, here's the new fun thing. Here's how to design, implement it. Yeah, so we're certainly having some interesting discussions about what, ne what needs to be added. I think one big area that we sort of called for some suggestions about is WebAssembly, which seems to be becoming a little bit more widespread. Although, uh, interestingly, cool. 
WebAssembly seems to be growing outside of the web as well and outside of the browser, um, based on a recent presentation I saw about it. But it does seem to be something that we're going to see more use of, and it'd be nice to have some guidance around that. Um, another big area is the sort of OIDC, OIDC and OAuth space, um, where there is some sort of discussion of that in version 4, but it's not super specific. And we're trying to look at how we can provide some slightly more specific guidance for that whilst not absolutely drowning in the complexity of the overall uh, ecosystem we have there. That's uh, an ongoing discussion as well. So we're certainly trying to make sure we bring in new areas. Ultimately, the idea is we you know, we know we can only do a big refresh on this project every few years, and therefore it's important as we're gathering, to, gathering together a new version that we're looking ahead and thinking, okay, what's going to be important, not just now, but, but in the future as well. And you know, there are interesting examples in, that in version 4, and like I say, with, we're looking at new areas for version 5 as well. It Part of that is you're talking about you know the, the new areas and much of the, the ASVS is very squarely focused on the developers. Here's what developers do, developer feedback. I, I think you've also gone out and actually, surprise, surprise, talked to developers, presented to developers rather than just talking about the ASVS to, to AppSec folks. Um, you know, tell us more about that. Why would we bother talking to developers about security? <laughs> <laughs> Well, this is, yeah, I mean, this is a realization I came to, and you know, I, I, we spend a lot of time in security talking about security and going to security conferences mm -hmm. and sort of getting very caught up in the, you know, the latest security thing. But you know, especially in, you know, in application security, the developers are sort of where we need to be. The development organizations are where we need to be. Um, and I think that we've sort of gone in a situation where you know, application security is seen as a specialism, it's seen as this group, you know, sometimes it's a person, sometimes it's a team, sometimes it's a, you know, a, a function that's within the organization, but it's sort of seen as a separate thing. And we have to find ways of sort of closing that gap and saying, well, actually, we need to be working within the development organizations. We need to be sitting alongside developers. We need to, you know, be re um, reporting on progress and on, you know, issues, not to security leadership, but to development leadership. And they, 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 we have to make them want to actually be interested in this and make them do this. I think that for a lot of time, I've, you know, I've seen this in lots of different environments, there's this sort of anti-pattern of there's a security team and they come up with a cool idea and they go to development leadership and development leadership are like, well, that's a really cool idea. You, sh you should get right on that. You, know, you should go and do that. <laughs> and then they start, the security team start going to individual developers and saying, oh, we'd like you to do this. We'd like, oh, this is a really example I've seen. Um, security training had a relatively mature organization that got some nice interactive uh, developer security training. Um, and this is exactly what happened. They got to, the, the leadership said, yeah, that sounds great. They started going to individual developers saying, have you done your security training? And they said, well, I've got this on, I've got this to build, and I've got this feature to finish, and I'm you know, in the middle of this sprint, I've got this task. And you know, it wasn't something that was built into their day. It was something the security team almost expecting they sort of do in their spare time or in, the, in, in their free time that they obviously had copious amounts of during their work day. And you know, it's, it's not, something that's, not something that works. And it's, you know, on the one hand, it's not going to get the security activities actually done. On the other hand, it's going to get developers resenting the security function as providing them extra work and giving them extra problems. And you know, a, lot of, a lot of what I'm working on at the moment, what I'm thinking about is how can we reduce that workload? How can we make that easier? And how can we sort of merge those two, two things together? So AppSec isn't its own thing on the side, but rather you know, the development organization, the development group makes the decision, OK, we want to build in a secure way. How are we going to do that? What are we going to include? And you know, security activities and security tasks to become another part of the developer's day-to-day -day that's you know, um, planned and allocated in time. You know, if they're going to a sprint meeting and they're getting a bunch of tasks to do during a sprint meeting, you know, one of those tasks is a security task. And it's you know, built into the plan that's part of their work day, and they've got time allocated to do it. 
Um, so I've been going to various developer conferences recently and generally trying to be more engaged with developers. And I think they're certainly very open to this sort of thing. They're very, you know, they, they want to build things securely, but mm -hmm. you know, if we talk about the idea, okay, well, security is everyone's job. Security is not everyone's job. Everyone's job is what their manager says it is. And we have to put it into their <laughs> job. And we have to add it, have it included as part of their job if we want it actually to get taken seriously, if we want it to, to succeed. I don't think it's going to happen just coming from the side as, as security people. No, indeed. I think, I'm curious, I, I love the fact that you've gone to developer conferences and, and spoken with them. I'm curious, you gave us a little bit of insight on what it takes to have those conversations with developers, where their priorities are, how to, you know, what, what points to hit. But I'm curious to lean into that a bit more and tell us when you give a presentation at a developer conference, how, what, what do you do differently th than from the presentation you might give at the OWASP conference, for example, or just a, an AppSec conference? So I think... I guess to two key aspects. I think the first key aspect is you obviously have to understand that the audience is different, the level, the backgrounds, knowledge is different. Um, not all of them will have, he have heard of OWASP. You know, I sometimes do a mm. quick show of hands of okay, okay, who's heard of OWASP? Who's heard of the ASVS? Who's heard of the OWASP top ten? Just to try and gauge, okay, well, you know, what's the personas of people in the room? You can go to an OWASP conference if one's heard of OWASP, but uh, you can't necessarily take that for granted, and you need to make sure that you're. You know, when you're talking about terminology, you're making it clear to them. So I think that's the first aspect, and making sure it's it's at their level of knowledge and it's focused on you know making sure they understand the concepts you're talking about. I think the other part is you need to be very careful about how you talk about things and how you talk about you know what you want to happen or what you want them to do because you have to appreciate well, you know, this we need to meet them where they are. We need to be able to put this into their overall what they're used to, their overall day to day. We can't start saying, well, you need to start doing this task and you start doing that task and you know, why why aren't you using this resource or that resource? Because you have to be very um, open to the fact that you know, this is going to be both new to them and something that is going to have to fit into you know their overall worldview. I think it's a little bit it's sort of different approach and it has to be a very sort of collaborative and engaging approach and saying, look, I'm, I'm not trying to bring you problems. I'm not trying to bring you extra work. I'm not trying to bring you stress. I'm trying to, I'm trying to help you. I'm trying to bring this to as a way that, in a way that makes it easier for you. Um, again, you know, another another classic anti-pattern is sort of the, you know, the, the the antagonist security person. You know, the Department of No, and it's about you know completely shedding that image and being very, very, very open. And I think that, you know, we have that. I think that's you know the Department of No. A stereotype, I think, is quite well known. But I think you know, not not becoming, you know, not being part of no is, is almost not enough. You have to be extra engaging. You have to be extra involved with them, and then, you know, reaching out to them more proactively. They have to be excited to see you. They have to be happy to see you. And I think that's that's quite a challenge, especially uh, some uh, security security people tend to be a little bit cynical. But I think it's it's vital to sort of get that positive engagement going. Josh, I have a question for you. Uh, you pointed to earlier that developers' work is not necessarily what the developer wants to do, it's what the manager tells them to do. So how do you get engineering managers on your side when you are trying to get developers to do security? So I think the key thing is you have to start with the engineering managers. You can't start with the developers. And I think you know, so sometimes I think I mean, maybe it's a terminology thing, or maybe it's just the way I talk about it, but you know, ultimately this has to start at the top. This has to be a decision that's made at the senior levels of engineering to say, look, if we want, you know, we, we, we would like this activity to happen, but this activity needs to become, you, know, you need to be able to take responsibility for this activity and include it in your day-to-day, -day, otherwise it's just not going to happen. I mean, I'm working with the organization at the moment, we're looking at um, the, the RACI matrix, you know, responsible, accountable, consulted, um, informed, and 
I'm sort of saying to them, look, you know, we've, we've got this, this, this Racky matrix. Security sits in the sea. Security sits as consulted. If we want this to happen, then the engineering has to be both accountable and responsible for actually doing it on the ground. And security has to find a way of making that easier and providing them with the resources and you know, helping them along with it and potentially you know, holding their hand on the initial stages. But if we really want it to be bedded in, if we really want it to be sustainable, then you know, engineering management has to say, okay, this is now becoming part of our standard process. You know, and, and I think I think, think engineering organizations are, you know, I don't think this is a thing that's foreign to our engineering organizations. You know, very frequently they'll have specific processes around software development. They'll have you know, their agile processes, they'll have their scrum meetings, they'll have their design meetings, they'll have their uh, release meetings, depending on the type of organization. You know, these are, you know, they're used to having specific processes and you know, some form of, some element of formality in place. In place. It's just figuring out, okay, what, how's that gonna, you know, security has to figure out how's that gonna work in this case, but then engineering have to take responsibility for actually saying, look, we're gonna pick this up and we're gonna run with it and we're gonna use it. Yeah, and I greatly appreciate you pointing out that the C is for consulted, not cynical. And uh, <laughs> AppSec is part of the the, the Reiki, Reiki matrix. Uh, yeah. and, and as you pointed out too, it needs to have active participation. That you you can't passively just sit back and say, "Well, come to me when you have a problem," or you know, uh, "I'm going to wait until something you know some breach happens, then I'll come out with the I told you so, and we'll take advantage of that and instill a whole bunch of new processes." Kind of shifting a bit, though, um, into that that management theme. However, you're managing a project like ASVS. You're you know co lead curating this project. What's it like to wrangle? Speaking of uh, infosec uh, groups, who are perhaps cynical, uh, they also might have uh, highly opinionated or uh, strongly held opinions. How do you wrangle some of that into building on a new version of the the ASVS? Yeah, I mean, it's certainly it's an interesting challenge there. Um, we've got five co-leaders of the project, all from sort of different backgrounds, very much geographically spread as well, sort of different perspectives. And you know, we generally manage to come to some sort of um, conclusion, some sort of agreement, but uh, you know, we always don't just want it to be us. And we take a lot of feedback from GitHub issues and feedback that comes directly to us. And you know, there's, there's a, a lot of input that comes in that way. And it's about trying to balance between the different perspectives and then figure out, okay, well, how do we, What's going to work best for us? What's going to work best for the overall um, you know, user base of, the, of this standard? And certainly, I think trying to you know, encourage that input is vital because you know, we, we obviously see certain aspects. We see certain perspectives. We want to see a wide variety of perspectives as well. But there's certainly a lot of effort involved in actually bringing that to some sort of um, conclusion, bringing that to some sort of um, consensus. And I think it's and it's it's a challenge. It's a lot of work. This is why we can only do this every few years, and this is why when we do want to do it. It's a lot of work. You know, we're, we're not necessarily at the rewrite stage yet. At the moment, we're still at the stage of going through hundreds of GitHub issues to uh, figure out, okay, well, you know, where are we on certain points? Where are we on certain requirements? And you know, in some ways, that's half half the battle. I spent some time a month or so ago working down the GitHub issues. I think I got to 100. I think last time I checked, there now 130 again, because <laughs> yeah, it's great to get input. We need that input, and that only makes the standard better, but it's, it's certainly, it's certainly time-consuming. Um, I think that sort of speeds into sort of overall discussions that are happening in OWASP at the moment about um, sort of how OWASP is, you know, maintains itself, how OWASP is sustainable. It's certainly, you know, compared to other industry groups, it's relatively yeah, you know, a relatively low, low budget and relatively you know, low finance available in order to actually push this sort of thing along. And uh, there's a lot of discussions at the moment thinking about, about how we can actually you know, increase that budget, how we can get more support from the organizations that are using these projects and are benefiting these projects in order to make sure that we've 
keep these projects going and that we can keep them sustainable. You know, some projects are, are well funded and have, are well supported, um, others less so. I mean, certainly ASVS doesn't have a, uh, an official supporter or an official uh, um, you know, main sponsor. It's certainly got you know, our organisations, some organisations let us spend some time on organisational time to work on it. And uh, we have had some support here and there, but uh, it's, it's a challenge. It's something that all of our WASP is looking at at the moment. And uh, I think ASVS is part of that as well. Yeah, indeed. And we'll, we'll, I want to come back to the idea of what the community can do to help and collaborate and contribute. But let's touch on that perhaps, you know, third rail, the the the, the fun topic of, of OWASP for a moment, mm -hmm. about what is, you know, ASVS is a well-known project. I'm not sure if it officially counts as flagship or not. Um, that's just my ignorance. I forgot to check. Um, but, you know, what would be the type of thing that would help you from from OWASP or help you from that organizational support to manage a project like this? Sort of what's a what's a good future that you would see from from the from the um, org? I think that there's, there's a very there's, there's there's tension between the idea of OWASP historically being a volunteer led organization, um, but also the level of reliance that's now placed on OWASP. I mean, OWASP top ten is considered a, a de facto standard, I hate using the word standard that top 10, but ultimately it's, mm -hmm. it's mentioned in all sorts of contexts. Um, we're certainly seeing more use of ASVS, all sorts of other, other use of OWASP in a, in a semi-commercial sense. And I think OWASP has to find ways of trying to bring that you know, back to the actual organization and bring more, more funds into the organization from these corporations that are using it, from the organizations that are using it while still making it accessible to the, you know, the individual people and the end users. Um, but also not being in a situation where um, OWASP is being controlled by the, the corporations. You know, there's discussion about, well, you know, there, there are other organizations where um, you, know, you can effectively, you know, the highest paid, high, highest level of sponsorship gets them a board seat and gets them um, control over the direction of the organization. I think that's, that's something that's certainly not been the case in the past in OWASP and could potentially be a, a, a tricky thing to balance with the overall community aspect. So uh, I, uh, there's been lots of, lots of opinions aired about it at the moment and I don't necessarily have an answer at the moment. I'm, so, I'm sort of in the middle of it, but uh, I still need to figure out exactly you know, what, what I think about it and where it comes down. But I think the overall goal needs to be to bring more of that support in. It's just a question of how. Indeed, and it's great to hear your feedback, your insights on that as someone who's very directly working on one of these projects that would be impacted and doesn't and doesn't have that similar funding. I'll, I'll mention, for example, OpenSSF. You know, they clearly have lots of funding to put into security-minded efforts. Now, perhaps some of them are more focused on uh, call it applied security in the sense of code reviews, et cetera, rather than setting up an ASVS. But clearly, ASVS looks like something profitable in the sense of improving security to, to lean into, especially when you're taking it to developers, the audience that actually needs to, to hear this. Uh, so speaking of those audiences, what can AppSec folks do to contribute? So look at the other side of the coin. There's a, what, 100, 130 issues at least to help triage. There's got to be more than just uh, reading uh, PRs as well, right? Yeah, so we've got... Um... You know, we, we certainly do want feedback on issues. We do want people to, to provide their opinions. You know, certain issues where we've specifically set out community wanted because we want you know, people to actually feed in and give their opinions on certain issues to help us decide you know, which way to go on a particular requirement or how to address a particular requirement. 
Um, and that, you know, that, that, that's really important. There will also come a time once we've got a little bit further down the road where we've got uh, an early draft of the version 5.0, we'll also be looking for people to go through that and provide feedback on the early draft and provide review. Um, that's certainly a, a, a big area where yeah, people can actually take part and help out. There are also other sort of minor points around some of the way that the, the, the doc documents are generated and some of the automation that maybe we could do with some help with as well. Uh, if people sort of don't fancy working on documents, but they do fancy writing a little bit of code or GitHub actions, that could possibly help as well. Um, but yes, yeah, the place to start is, is the GitHub repository or the, uh, the ASVS channel in Slack. That's a, a great place to, to find out I think, you know, what we're currently talking about, what we're currently interested in. One thing I'm thinking about, Josh, um, and uh, Mike, Mike sort of got my brain going when he mentioned OpenSSF here. It's another project I'm working on. Um, you know, thinking about open source, you're just talking about, you know, I think when we've talked about ASVS in the past and even now today, most of the time we're talking about, you know, professional software developers using this, like to, to in the result of a, a commercial product. Do you think at all about how do other, how would other open source projects go about using something like this? Um, and from the, the standpoint and coming from like one thing is I'm working with CNCF is, how do we get all these projects which are coming through CNCF to actually have some form of security structure to them? Do we go out to all the sandbox projects? And so I'm wondering, like, is this something you've thought about? Like, how do, you know, there's very few security folks in open source on the project side. Is this a tool that they could use or have you seen someone use something like this? So I guess the biggest challenge with ASBS which I guess yeah, is, is size, and part of that then contributes to the actual, okay, how do we check this? How do we verify this? How do we make sure this is the case? And, you know, certain requirements are a little bit more straightforward to automate, a little bit straightforward, more straightforward to say, okay, is this happening? Is this not happening? But a lot of it does require some, some manual involvement. Um, and that's sort of tricky. That's a, that's a, a tricky nut to crack because a, a lot of the requirements do need some sort of manual thought about them. They do need to say, okay, well, how, how, how have they actually implemented this? Have they done this in, in, in an appropriate way? You know, if you're checking a security header, for example, that's very straightforward. You can see the okay, this web app returns a security header. We can check for that in an automated way, job done. But if it's, well, have you implemented access control um, in an appropriate way, then that's a whole sort of kettle of fish that might require you to, you know, potentially you can look at that from actually browsing the application, but you might need to look at the code as well. Like it's, it's sort of difficult to streamline, difficult to automate. And I think that, yeah, certainly a lot of the, you know, the requirements are ultimately not specific to a particular industry or specific to a particular, particular type of software. I think they're certainly usable um, by open source developers, but it's a question of, well, you know, who, who's actually going to do that and how's that, how's that going to happen? You know, the guidance is there. It's a question of actually thinking, well, how are we going to use this on the ground? Um, and certainly for open source, that might be a challenge in the same way that you know, you're getting any time to work on anything in open source is, is, a, is a challenge in that you know, someone needs to take the time to look at this. Yeah, along those lines, I'm curious, you know, how does an org, whether open source group or not, how would they demonstrate we followed the ASVS? And part of why I'm asking is that you could go in with pen testing and say, we didn't find anything. So, you know, an ideal pen test report is an empty piece of paper in a way in terms of just uh, what you didn't find. But that's also not necessarily helpful because you also say, well, did you test for everything? Did you test for this part of the ASVS? Did you test for this? How did you test? Was it interesting? And I don't think the ASVS, in fact, is set up as focused on pen testing, which I think is good. There are other OWASP testing guides, et cetera. So, I'm an engineering manager or I'm an open source team, how do I say, yeah, we follow the ASVS standard. Here's our, here's our little badge. How do I get my little badge on my, my GitHub repo? So I think for the, 
Okay, so in terms of you know, using it for penetration testing, it's not set out in like how you do a test, you know, physically what buttons you click, right. you know, the actual process, but I think it certainly is usable in terms of ideas, okay, what do I want to check? What do I want to verify in a penetration test? So level one of the SVS is intended to be um, almost entirely testable using penetration testing techniques. You know, someone who's coming from the outside and testing the application, um, like a you know like a regular user would use the application without in the, without necessary inside knowledge, mm -hmm. so I think it can be useful from that way. But I think the problem is we don't necessarily see penetration testing organizations using it. Certainly not not on the face of the reports. I think it'd be nice to see more testing organizations actually look going through and saying, well, this is what we checked. These requirements there are okay. These requirements there are issues. And uh, certainly we're seeing initiatives to actually try and move that along. Um, most notably from uh, Crest and their new OVS. Um, program which looks at trying to deliver penetration tests but with a sort of basis around the SVS and also Google are looking at this for their the uh, application defense alliance project um, which they are a part of and uh, they're using SVS as the basis for some of the security testing around uh, web-based applications um, and so you know th those are two examples where organizations are trying to get to to take the SVS and use it, you know, as it says, as a verification standard, as a way of saying, look, we've we're testing basing on on this. We're not just sort of using some sort of nebulous pen testing methodology. We're actually basing specifically on that. Um, and I think that you know, organisations can potentially you know, development organisations, engineering teams can potentially try and self-certify. It is quite a lot of work because they you know they do need to go through it, they need to understand, they need to figure out how to do that. Um, but I think we're certainly seeing more movement in. The, the idea that the organization can come in, testing organization can come, can come in and check you specifically against ASVS and they feel you've got more comfort. Okay, I've not just gone through a pen test, I've actually been through some sort of test which verified me against these ASVS requirements so I can demonstrate, okay, well, here I'm okay, here I'm less okay about working on it and have a slightly more comparable perspective. Something you can actually take and show, look, here's how we're doing right now, here's how we're doing previously and you know, it's something a little bit less nebulous than here's a piece of paper with a bunch of issues that might or might not be complete. From a pen test company. No, yeah, thank you for that. And I definitely the the OVS and uh, even the App Defense Alliance. Those are definitely areas newer to me um, uh, that uh, time to dive into and learn some more of. I'm curious too. It's learning as we um, <clears throat> speaking of learning. The, the ASVS, you, you know, working on number, you know, uh, version five coming out. Is there a particular section that you are, you find most interesting? And interesting can be defined how you like it, in the sense of it's hard to do, it's complex, or it's a, it's an area where the, you see lots of risk and most mistakes. You know, if someone had to pick one of the ASVS sections, what would that be? Um, <laughs> it's funny. I think that. I mean, on, the, on the one hand, I sort of like the ASVS sections are a little bit more specific, a little bit more niche and sort of problems that people don't necessarily always think about but can still cause problems. So, for example, there's requirements talking about um, picking up on activities which are technically the user is allowed to do, but maybe not at the volume that they're doing it. So, for example, you've got a requirement that says, oh, well, um, you know, if, you've, if you've got a, let's say, a call center system, I don't know, let's say it's a bank's call center, and they're expected to look at, I don't know, 10 customers now or something like that, and they, you know, they've got customers calling up and looking at their data, yeah, they're allowed to look at customer data as part of their job. And if they're looking at 10 customers now, then that's probably expected. If they're looking at 1,000, 2,000, 3,000 customers now, that probably means something untoward is going on. And they've not technically broken any access controls there because they're technically allowed to do it. But it, you know, this is a sort of level of detail that ASVS can, can get into. It's like more subtle issues that can still be quite significant. So I think those type of issues are quite like the idea that we can sort of pick up on some of the edge cases. 
But to me, you know, the, to me, the most exciting prospect for 5.0, the most, you know, the, the, the biggest thing is really, you know, not a specific section. It's just about making it overall easier to use, to be, you know, making it something that can more easily take development teams and more easily show development teams, and you know, the developers can themselves access and feel more confident using. It. And to me, that's the, you know, that's the big goal. We've we've publicly stated that our main aim for version five is usability, and to me, that's really really important to actually um, you know, bring the standard into development teams and get them using it and get it more wi widely used in the industry. So one of the ways to improve usability and for people that are curious would be hearing you talk about it. Uh, what are some developer or AppSec conferences coming up that uh, people you, you would like to highlight or that people can come learn more about the ASVS? Um, so on ASVS, um, I've got a talk at QCon coming up in London in a couple of weeks' time now. That's uh, late March in London, so that should be good fun. And that's, that's a talk more about building the SVS in here. QCon is more of a developer conference, so it's more about, okay, well, how do we actually take this and make it usable, make it practical? Um, so that should be an interesting talk. Um, I think I'm also speaking, uh, doing a virtual talk for the Old Wasp Netherlands chapter where I'll be talking a little bit more about version 5 and talking a little bit about uh, the overall plans and some of this verification side as well, just to um, give a little bit more information about you know, where we are and the di direction that we're going in. Um, you know, ultimately, you know, for me, ASPS is about bringing security to, to developers, and that's the, you know, that's the that's the big the big goal for me. How we can make things easier for developers, and how we can make things um, you know, make them feel more at home with it, and how we can get them integrating them into their their overall processes. Like I say, you know, we don't we don't want security to live with the security team. We want application security to live with the development teams. And and ASVS is a way to, to to make that happen. So we love that. As we're wrapping up here, uh, five has been kind of the, the theme number of the day, but we also always ask our guests to describe AppSec in three words. And uh, as someone who's been working with the ASVS in particular, I'm very curious what uh, your, your, your answer to that is. So to me, when I think of AppSec in three words, it's, um, you know, I've probably mentioned this already, yeah, development buy-in. Yeah, we need that to be within development teams, we need to be adopted by development teams. We can't just make this cool stuff that we think ourselves is really good if no one's going to use it and no one's going to take it up. Um, and yeah, that's very much my focus based on you know, ASPS and other work I'm doing at the moment around uh, yeah, application security tools, which is also a massive area. If we talk about um, pen, you know, five, 10 years ago, you said, okay, have you got an application security program? People would say, oh yeah, we do pen testing, we do application pen testing. And you know, a few more years ago, you say, have you got an application security program? They go, yeah, we've got SAS, we've got DAS, we've got this tool, we've got that tool. We've, uh, you know, we're running this in our CI/CD, and you know, that, that's, I think that's part of the reason why developers may be a little bit frustrated with security and why I think we need that effort to actually go to them because they've now seen the security as these tools which generally will give them a headache, will generally spit out a load of sort of nasty, complicated results if they've not got them tuned properly, if they've not got those tools that actually um, configured in the way that developers can use them effectively and that, you know, that they'll, again, build into their processes and work with their processes. I think it's another another classic coming at the side offense where developers say, you know, you, you come, the AppSec person comes to the development person says, oh, I've got this like thousand finding SAS report. Do you find, you know, you, you just go through it and just like uh, get this sorted out by the end of the week, please. And yes, yeah, so it's another classic area of bringing this process that doesn't work for developers and just gives them a headache and makes them not like security. <laughs> Well, I'm not sure. Yeah, I'm not sure how many of those we could sort out just by the end of this week. Even looking at the ASVS, because that's complicated <laughs> enough as well. But yeah. uh, you definitely sorted this out on lots of wonderful aspects and perspectives of 
talking to developers. Is I, I just keep coming to that because I love that as a theme, and I think that's something we don't talk about as much within AppSec circles. So, so thank you for uh, bringing that perspective as well as the ASVS to us, Josh. Yeah, yeah. I'm really glad to talk about it, and certainly I'm really keen for people to get in touch and talk about the ASVS. And uh, you know, I do training privately on the SVS because I think it's you know, a really in interesting area and I think it's a really you know, high value area that can really help organizations structure how they look at security. Um, and I also do training on tool about tools as well. I think that's another area where I think there's a lot of, a lot of, um, a lot of value to be had, a lot of value to be, get, to be found in these processes that don't necessarily come with the tool installation. You don't press next, next, next finish on the tool and suddenly get this value. I think you have to have some bit more understanding about how to actually get that value out. So. Uh, yeah, those, are, those are my two passion areas at the moment, ASVS and uh, AppSite scanning tools. Um, and yeah, hoping to take the AppSite scanning tools um, training that I've got on that to Black Hat as well, which is really exciting. Um, ah, wonderful. Yeah. So yet another chance to uh, go, go to Black Hat and uh, attend some of Josh's training. We'll make sure we have a lot of links in the show notes so you can find uh, find out what Josh has been working on as well as uh, presentations. So uh, if you have some opinions on ASVS, if you have some time to help, go help out Josh. If you want to hear more from him, definitely attend one of his trainings or one of his presentations. So I want to say thanks once again, Josh. I want to say thank you to John and Akira. Thank you to all of our listeners. We're going to take a quick break now and return with news of the week. Thanks, everyone. Great chat to see you. Imperva is the comprehensive digital security leader on a mission to help organizations protect their data and all paths to it. Only Imperva protects all digital experiences, from business logic to APIs, microservices, the data layer, and from vulnerable legacy environments to cloud-first organizations. With an integrated approach combining network, application, and data security, Imperva protects companies ranging from cloud-native startups to global multinationals with hybrid infrastructure. Start a free trial today and quickly protect your web applications at securityweekly.com slash Imperva. Welcome back to Application Security Weekly. We just talked with Josh Grossman about creating a new version of the ASVS, bringing security to developers, and the direction of OWASP in its support of flagship projects. I'm your host, Mike Shima. I'm here with John Kinsella and Akira Brand, and it's just about time for the news. But first, one announcement. Identifirst 2023 is heading to Vegas. Join the digital identity community at the Aria Resort and Casino, May 30th to June 2nd. Identifirst is a must-attend annual event that brings together over 2,500 security professionals for four days of world-class learning, engagement, and entertainment. As a community member, you're able to receive 20% off your Identiverse 2023 tickets using code ISV23-SW20. Don't worry, it's on the site. I register today at securityweekly.com slash Identiverse2023. John Akira, it's great to have you both here this week. I have a uh, just a real quick AP I don't know question to start us off with. Uh, listener John asks, where can I find those synthwave artists you mentioned at the end of the show? Well, good news, uh, listener John. I've created a playlist on title that I'll put into the show notes. And uh, once Bandcamp brings their playlist support out of uh, beta, I'll be sharing that over on Bandcamp as well. So go, go buy some music, support your artists, and... Uh, have some great synthwave to code to. Um, in addition to coding, we have a couple of articles here about code gone wrong, protecting code, and all sorts of things. But maybe we'll start with things that went wrong about caching. Uh, Akira, uh, let's give you first strike on this. Loom is looming. Tell us more. <laughs> Loom is looming. That's so good. Um, yeah, so... 
what happened with Loom is there was a configuration change to their CDN. And what that did is it caused incorrect session cookies to be sent back to the users. So um, long story short, essentially users were able to log or were getting content that was not meant for them. Um, and something that I was really impressed by with Loom is that actually about, I want to say about a half hour after they discovered this vulnerability, they actually decided to turn the app off. And I thought that that was really impressive because it definitely pointed to that they're a lot more serious about security than they were necessarily about like making, getting the business, um, how do I say this? Um, like they're, they're making security a business priority in that moment. Um, and I think Mike, it would be good if you wanted to maybe dive into the technical side of things and we can maybe discover that a little bit together. Indeed. And I think this was the type of uh, transparent write-up that's nice to see. When it starts off with a phrase like, we care deeply about privacy and security, um, it's a different take on when we take your security seriously. But when every single sentence after that provides details, walks through what they did, walks through their analysis, walks through their, 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 their insights, it actually supports that opening sentence. So this, that's what's really nice to see. As you noted, uh, this the and as the the, the uh, write up notes, caching is always a caching is is one of those uh, what three areas of naming naming things and off by one. I can't remember what all three are. My brain is dead today. But caching problems lead to security problems, especially if you've cached set cookie headers like had happened in this case, or even if you're caching the profile or the, the the content that's being returned to individuals and then there could be almost uh, just a, a Russian roulette with your with your of your privacy breach notices if you're if you're returning cache information to the wrong user so the the timeline walks through their analysis that they were prepared for this they show that they didn't go into this blind they did testing they thought this through it was a very deliberate change to adopt the CDN. Of course, what they didn't realize is that the set cookie header was being cached, and that set cookie was giving basically with everyone else who visited someone else's cookie. Therefore, now rather than uh, as we say, you know, cred active credentials are the best backdoor into a system. If you don't even need the credentials and you have that authentication token, a cookie in this case, you can see someone else's data. Now. What was really interesting is that they also say this only happened within a, a one second one second time window was the the uh, window of opportunity for seeing someone else's data, and also that it was limited to uh, you know just a, a certain a brief period of time throughout the day when it was first notified to them or indicated to them that something bad was happening and they fixed it. So I think all in all a pretty good write up. It's impressive that they can come back to say zero point one eight percent of total workspaces, and in other words, users may have been impacted. Um, so they're biased towards the, the upper end of potential disc, uh, users who were impacted. But uh, logging has been a theme uh, last uh, two or three uh, episodes. And I think if you have good logging that can give you confidence to make a statement like that, that's another good sign. So I think all in all, great to see transparency from this. And this is the type of breach notification that we'd like to see more of, despite that we'd like to see fewer breaches overall. I want to jump in real quick on this. Um, I try to look really quickly on LinkedIn. Uh, I don't have time because my, my things are slow. Um, but at least if I look at Loom's homepage, I don't see um, 
a, a CISO listed. I see like a CTO, the guy who wrote this, this message. I thought that was interesting. Who's responsible for security there? Do they have someone at C-level um, or even VP? So that's hmm, company with 200 million in funding. That's interesting. Um, and then the second thing, it's sort of taken a step back. We were quite fond of, of doing the funny ha-ha around we care deeply about privacy and security. Any thoughts on how companies should be, how should they be communicating out to people that they actually care instead of just using that boilerplate sentence? Yeah. Honestly, it's an excellent question because if we, we, if we say, well, what should they be saying instead? I think in this case... That was a great opening sentence because yeah. everything else supported that. They showed that here was the change that we expected to do. We'd actually gone through different sets of preparation for that change because we know that major changes have consequences, just bugs in general, as opposed to security vulns. But then when they identified that there was a security issue, they shared what they did about it. They shared their root cause analysis. And I think they also shared, you know, they didn't say how they would prevent it in the future, but they said that they have installed, uh, you know, new processes, updated process to prevent that. So I think that combination of, it's wonderful to, please do say you take, or let's just say, rather than say, please do take security and privacy seriously, but then demonstrate how you do that. And I think if you say what you were, what you would have had expected to happen, what actually happened that surprised you, and how you responded to that, those to me, I think, are the three things that um, make this type of disclosure useful to me and uh, gets rid of the cynicism. Uh, there's a, a bit of a callback to our last episode. So I'm not sure if that answers your question, John, or if there's perhaps even different format or, or phrasing that we could be looking to or here. Oh, no, it, it's really, I'm just, um, I, I'm trying to sort of, you know, give the listener some sort of, mm -hmm. uh, not just for us to think about, but our listeners, like, yeah. okay, at some point, mm -hmm. a, a senior developer in a you know any size company that's listening to this, they might get the shoulder tap from the the, the boss man or woman saying, "Hey, <laughs> we have to write something," and they have to start frantically typing. It's like, okay, how do you, what do you put into that, right? And we've talked before about like what what a good um, versus not great uh, version of mm -hmm. this type of a document looks like, and this is a pretty good one. But okay, if you're if you're going to go out to your customers and say, you know, we we care. It, it, the phrase gets so overused, so heavily used. Like, how do you? Is there is there a way to communicate that you know without going to a thesaurus or how? how do that, that's really the, the one I'm thinking about. Yeah, one I think thing I would. Oh, go ahead, Mike. Nope. Oh, I was okay. going to say you, you pointed out, uh, John, real quick that yeah. uh, this was written by the CTO, yeah. and we've actually we've highlighted a couple other. I think it was was the Reddit one as well that I think was also written by the CTO. That was also a good degree of transparency, basically treated like an engineering postmortem. Um, whereas the last past uh, breach we looked at, that was released from the CSO, and it wasn't as great. The, it, there, there was it wasn't as much of that that engineering style postmortem. There wasn't as much transparency. It was a, a trickle of information. So perhaps one of the things I'd, I'd suggest there is approach this as an engineering postmortem, with the caveat that your audience is not just engineers. Your audience are lay people who don't necessarily understand CDN's caching, what the set cookie header is, or necessarily have to care, but at least put it in the language that explains, that that demonstrates you knew what happened, that someone with some more, an AppSec folks, the DevOps team, for example, can look at that and learn from it, um, but doesn't use jargon that is just obfuscating the picture or making it sound like, may, making it even more confusing for, for, the, for the listener. So maybe that's what I would add there for our listeners uh, to think of as well. And Akira, you had something. 
Oh, Mike, just to prove that great minds think alike, I was literally going to say this reads like an engineering postmortem. So <laughs> as I'm reading this, if I'm putting myself in the shoes of a software developer, this would make sense to me. Um, and it would also be something that I could take and put into my own work relatively simply, um, maybe not easily, but it would be straightforward and say, oh, okay, like now I know I need to not use a set cookie response header, um, as opposed to something like the last pass write up where it's like, okay, like I know there's something wrong, but how can I apply this to my work? How can I make myself better and security minded as a software developer right here in this loom transcript? This is very straightforward. Um, the only other thing I would say that I would suggest for our listeners, if you have something like this, is first off, definitely write something very similar to this, uh, where it's like almost like an engineering postmortem where software developers can take lessons from it, where it reads very straightforwardly um, and quite technically, but without getting too bogged down by jargon. But I would even suggest having a second post that is geared toward laymen. I've never seen this. I don't know that this is industry standard, but I have some colleagues actually that are not technically savvy that were trying to use Loom and they were part of the, the uh, people that were kind of locked out when Loom went down for a little while. So I mentioned to them, oh, wow, like I hope your data wasn't compromised. And that freaked them out. They're like, wait, what do you mean? Mate? What, what are you talking about? Um, so having something like that, that's more geared toward laymen and, and customers that are not technically savvy would also be useful, I think, to rebuild that trust. Because right now, this document rebuilds trust with other developers. It rebuilds trust with technical people, but it doesn't necessarily rebuild trust with a layman who doesn't understand that this is a well-written document. Yeah, and perhaps there is that aspect of define what was your potential exposure if you were affected, what might have been the consequences, and clearly, is there is there a next step that you need to take? You as an end user, meaning we're recommending change your passwords, be on the lookout for an email reset, or carry on, we've taken care of it. There's actually nothing you need to do um, because it's backend fixes, or for, for lack of a better term, off, off the top of my head. Um, but let's, we'll come back to these ideas of, of communication, discussing breaches, because we have a whole bunch of other uh, articles to get through. And I want to go through, turn to GitHub real quick, because the three of us each picked a different aspect of GitHub to, to highlight this week. I was saw that starting today, they're going to start, GitHub will start their year-long campaign to enforce and require 2FA across for, for everyone, for all developers, which is a great, check, uh, great step forward. What I liked about this is they were giving a nod towards this isn't in, this isn't the type of thing you do overnight. So I think this points out to um, avoiding the appsec mentality of just deploy 2FA and your problems are solved. It's more of how do you deploy 2FA with a large group, uh, you know, with, with, with across a large population of developers? How do you make sure that account recovery still works so that everyone doesn't get locked out? And what was interesting in this to me. If you do get locked out of your account and the your email address is the unique identifier for your account, how then do you just open a new account with your same email? Um, so there, there's a lot of interesting things that they went into considerations here for usability. Uh, so that's what I thought was kind of neat, just as pointing out, it takes a lot of work to do this type of broad population shift. So I don't know, uh, John, if there's something else you would want to add there or take us to your 
um, view of GitHub this this week? Um, it's it's interesting. This is it's good that they did this, um, but at the same time, I'm like I've got that turned on for at least a year, if not years, and I'm like okay. But I mean, I guess for for the larger organization, for the larger population of developers, not a security nerds, it's a really great thing. Um, yeah, I, I sort of, if we don't mind, I want to hit um, Akira's story first, and then I'll come to mind if that's yes. cool. Yeah, yeah, sure. I'm, I'm not trying to do a gotcha, but I'm going to do a gotcha. So there's oh, your no, foreshadowing. Oh no, you're totally fine. <laughs> okay, cool, cool, cool. Um, yeah, so actually, the thing that really stuck out to me about Mike's article, which will lead into why I chose my article, is um, talking about how developer accounts are frequent targets for account takeover, and by doing something like two FA. It's the first step into securing the software supply chain. Kind of how that stuck out to me was it's not the only step. It's not the end step. There's just, it's just the first step. So my article actually is um, linked uh, on this original article from Mike. And it's called How to Secure Your End-to-End Supply Chain on GitHub. So there's a couple of things that they recommend. Number one is securing your accounts. Number two, securing your code in your supply chain and securing your build system. So they have guides for all of these. Uh, The one that I wanted to highlight is securing your code in your supply chain. So if you actually go to my listed article, you can click on securing your code in your supply chain listed under that header and just see a really cool best practices guide. Um, Now, a lot of this guide is essentially about uh, creating inventory of your dependencies, knowing when there's a security vulnerability in the dependency, um, making sure you have dependency reviews on your pull requests, and also assessing the impact of the vulnerability on your code. At Resilia, we do this automatically. We've automated this with a tool. And um, what I notice is that it's a great opportunity to open the door with software developers on our team to talk about what is a software supply chain? Um, what is it? What does a vulnerability and dependency mean for you? Even though we've automated this whole process, it's a really great way to bring our developers into the tool that we're using and saying, okay, here's here's what this means um, by having a vulnerability and a dependency, and here's why we need to update it. Not just like, oh, hey, we're blocking this PR and you need to fix it within a week, or we're not going to let you continue your work. So I think this is just kind of points back to software uh, developer education um, beyond just telling developers to just put on 2FA or update their dependencies. All this is teachable moments. These are all learning opportunities. Um, And that's why I linked my article because there's just really great uh, guides that you can use as an AppSec professional, but also point your developers towards. I thought it was interesting from the point of view of it, it the, the, the direct link from your that you put in there, it's it could be seen as hand wavy, but really of course gives a nice overview of things as I hand wave. But um, what's what's nice about it is that then you're able to click down in and find out more about those things. I think mm-hmm. I sort of like to go deeper, but I mean I, I haven't clicked all the way down the rabbit hole. There, there's as you go deeper, you get more links, and so you can keep diving and diving and diving. Um, so yeah, pretty neat. Yeah, I mean it starts out really high level, like. Yeah, secure your supply chain, take an inventory management, but then also like in this best practices document, you can talk about like securing your communication tokens, you can keep vulnerable coding patterns out of your repository. It just, it goes deep. 
very quickly, um, which is pretty cool. And then it also will show like different things within GitHub um, that you can use like different tools. For example, like when you're keeping vulnerable coding patterns out of your repository, there's a whole section on code scanning that GitHub just rolled out. I think it was like a month or so ago. Um, where you can take a look and see if there are vulnerable coding patterns and also if there are secret scanning as well. So it's a really good resource. Um, definitely something worth clicking around and just keeping in mind again that developer education aspect, um, not just what can this do for me, but what can this do for my devs? Um, yeah, and, and two real brief thoughts there. One, um, I see mention of GitHub Advanced Security. For those who don't know, that, that costs the, the dollars or your currency of choice. Um, and then the second thing, a great way to uh, use some of these scanning, not just the, the built-in tools which GitHub has, but also you know third-party scanners out there, either open source or commercial like yours, is um, GitHub Actions, which will be my segue into yes. the third story. Um, there you go. And uh, the guys over at ChainGuard, I think, I don't know if we've talked about them directly or not in the past, but we have talked about their big contributor to um, Salsa and things like that. Um, they have a blog post where they figured out something interesting. So it turns out the way when you're, you know, for those, you know, quick review of Git for, for those who maybe you don't know it, um, you've got a project on GitHub, so you make, might want to make some modifications. So you check it out or you do what's called a fork of the project, right? So you have your own individual copy and it's, it's there's hist historical connections back up to the parent, quote unquote parent, but it's, it's your own little beast. Um, and it turns out, I'm, I'm leaving some of the details of the article out, it, it's a good read, but it turns out if you make commits on that fork, in some cases, it becomes difficult to figure out, is that commit, that hash you have, is that from on your fork or does that come from the parent? And there's tools out there to sort of help you figure this stuff out. If, if you're, I'm sure many of our listeners, if you're, you're working with, you know, doing software development commercially, professionally, you'll, you'll you play with some of the tools out there, like how do you visualize either branches or forks and how those things get merged back in or like it, it you know, where did the commit actually come from? How did that, how does someone work on that? And so part of this is how does, how GitHub itself actually displays that or handles, I should say, that, that commit on a fork. So some, in some cases, depending on when you use that, it might look like you're referring to the, the master or the parent uh, source tree. So for those who don't know in Git, you're able to, you know, you can check out something or you can refer to a commit either by its tag, if it's tagged or the branch it's on or, um, you know, the actual SHA of the, the commit or there's a few different ways you can actually refer to, hey, I want this specific version of this code, right? This commit with this very particular thing which was just updated. Um, and in some cases, what someone would do if that's, so that could be referred to as pinning your code, right? If you're going, if you're going to check out a very specific version, you say, I want this very, ver this version, not a, not a version release or a tag or anything else. I want this commit hash. So you do something like git checkout, um, the branch name app, and then the, the hash after it. Uh, that can also be used if you want to pin the version of an action which you're using. So if you're if you set up actions on GitHub, and say you want to do use an open source tool to scan your code, or um, yeah, let's, let's keep it simple. Stick that example. There's some sort of thing you want to run against your code in an action. And what you would actually do in your uh, in your GitHub Actions uh, configuration, you'd say step uses, and then the actual URL to the to branch, and then as I said, the at and the actual hash. So it turns out in some cases, 
it's not going to be clear either to you or to GitHub. Is that referring to a commit in your branch or in a fork off of it? So that could be used for if you're able to, I mean, you still have to get access to that GitHub Actions file to be able to modify it, right? But you could, as a attacker, a malicious user, you could put a commit in there, which looks like it's completely fine and would just be going, oh, there's nothing wrong there. But you're actually got code which you're controlling, which is actually running on someone else's repo. Um, yeah, it, for those who are, are not watching the, uh, the the video version of this, uh, um, uh, Akira's eyes sort of opened up, which is the appropriate response on this. A uh, little bit of a long walk into that, but yes, they they sort of walk through this in detail, uh, and you know they they have tools. Um, ChainGuard has tools around um, signing and and you know um, helping keep track of of some of these type of things. So they've open sourced one of them. Uh, it is called I don't have it on my screen right now. Oh no. Um, Clank, C-L-A-N-K, um, on ChainGuard's uh, repo that actually sort of helps visualize or is that, where did that commit come from? Is that something we really want to be using? Uh, so for people who might be thinking about doing that type of thing, that, that might be something you want to check out. John, yeah, can I, you tell us more about the code signing aspect of this? Yeah, so from this point of view, and this is, we talked, and the article you had was actually talking about signing releases and things like that as well, right? So mm -hmm. the idea being, if you, and there's different ways you can sign code. You can either sign the release or sign each commit or do different things. Excuse me as I snuggle. But what would go on if you're signing your commits, uh, you can do this either built in with um, GPG. You can configure Git to use GPG. I believe you can configure Git to use the, um, uh, the chain guard guys' tools as well. That'll actually put the commit, put the signature into the commit itself. So at that point in time, then you can use either look at that manually, or you can use tools. But you can go back and go: Is this commit actually as it was signed? Does that thing match up? Um, so that will give you a sense of both um, ownership of that, as well as has been modified. Has someone gone back with like a get commit dash dash append and modified something after a signature commit? Um, so that's a general idea there. But in in if you're doing something like this, I mean, just off the top of my head, maybe the first step you'd want in your action is verify the commit of the next of that actual pinned version, and then go ahead and use it. But that it's it you'd have to sort of think through how to do it. Good question, Akira. But that's sort of a general idea. Yeah, and code signings was interesting too. That was on my because I was thinking I, I like the idea of code signing, uh, but even in the write up they call out eh, code signing may or may not have even helped here because it's yeah. complex. And um, just as a real quick comment on that, I do in my own uh, you know in my own work in my own unside use GPG based signing, but I also just have a single device I'm coming from. I'm less worried about the the managing keys and so on and. That's where SigStore uh, was was trying to help with um, managing keys, so that not everyone ha in this day and age needs to set up their own PKI. Because once you're doing that, uh, you've just got more complexity, more gnarly stuff that's going to go wrong with signing. And the nice thing with the SigStore tools, um, beside the fact that it gives you actual decent signing on things like container images, unlike the other stuff, uh, I've done that rant before, uh, but it actually keeps a database of those commits, of those signatures, of those signings, excuse me. So you're able to see even without looking at the Git code of like, hey, there's actually a signature passed through here. And that gets sort of expensive if you're signing each commit that way. But that could give you an out-of-band way of actually checking those things as well. Sort of neat. 
Absolutely. Um, keeping an eye on time, I want to throw on, throw out there, I've been tracking, uh, John, I think you and I mentioned last week, maybe the week before, about tracking projects that are moving to Rust or moving from C and C++ to memory safety areas. Uh, just a real quick note here, Apache patches two important bugs. Uh, this is a bit rare because we, we don't, usually don't see Apache bugs dropping into the news or coming across the radar. And mostly I just wanted to note this as, you know, it's, it's, not, it's not the end of the world, but it's uh, yet more request smuggling that is uh, plaguing the server. And there was at least one effort to create, to bring Rust into Apache, but that was done by the, the memorysafety.org uh, group. Prosimo, I think, is the, the, the name of the project, who created Mod TLS, uh, which drop-in replacement for Mod SSL. But what was interesting is that was the, the Internet Security Research Group that did that work. It wasn't the ASF. And so far as I can tell, the ASF is pretty fine with the way that the implementation of HTTPD in C, and there's no plans to replace that in Rust. So it's just interesting to see what different, the, the different paths, um, different um, software projects decide to take on either there's too much lift, we need, you know, where's the investment to make a rewrite, a refactor into a different language, or we'll just stick with what we have and Yes, the, the 2.4 security page does have a decent list of memory safety issues, but uh, not the end of the world. My main question is, who makes these decisions at the end of the day? Is it the Apache Foundation? Like, okay, we're going to go ahead and do this rewrite. How do they take in that input? Like, what filters in to their decision to do something as huge as refactoring to a different language? So Apache... This is, we're getting one of my um, pet peeves here. Apache is an organization, HTTPD is the actual project. Um, so Got the it. Apache is a, a group of communities um, where I'm a member, so I can talk about this in detail. What would happen something like this is the community of the Apache HTTPD project would say, hey, we don't feel confident in what's going on with, with, our, with our web server. We feel the need that um, we want to go down that path. There'll probably be a vote on it. You'll probably have to go to the PMC, the Project Management Committee, and say, hey, we're going to go in a different direction. Um, after all that, it wouldn't surprise me if they created a HTTPD-Rust and actually create a separate project. Maybe they have the same project, but that'd be sort of the, the technicalities that would go on behind the scenes. Um, this is obviously the oldest project at Apache. Uh, the chance of them rewriting that um, I'd be quite shocked. Uh, there's a lot going on there, right? Because you've got your plugin framework, you've got all the plugins, um, you've got a ton of tuning which has happened on this over the last many years. Uh, so yeah, my, my guess is you'd see something like on memorysafety.org, another good website, Mike. Uh, you might actually see a, a separate version, like maybe Nginx or something else is being done in this. Right. Um, yeah. But yeah. And I think in part of the part of those discussions would be why you know mm -hmm. do we need to mm -hmm. uh, the same thing there was I think um, OpenSSF was also sponsoring some memory safe curl which sure makes sense but curl is uh, speaking of of ancient projects and I say that with kindness um, curl is twenty is going to be twenty five years old I believe in another week or two so um, we'll we'll remember to to celebrate them but um, it's had its memory safety issues but it's not necessarily like the sky is falling type of issues that it runs into all the time so it's also one of those 
maybe we should put our, our, our work elsewhere. And if we took, talk about another foundation that we mentioned in this segment with Josh, OpenSSF, they're looking at this and they are did some work in the open about what are the top 100, the top 10 open source projects and what should we do about them? How should we invest? And the part of that investing is pen testing. Part of it is just doing, more importantly, doing a lot of work to close open issues, doing some code review, doing some coding work, because a lot of these areas, even HTTPD, even curl, they don't necessarily need a, yet another list of all the things wrong with them. They actually need volunteers to actually to, to write code. So that's that's where major investment decisions come from. And that's, as John alluded to, that's why people are going to vote. The people who actually do the work, they should probably be responsible for deciding what work do they want to invest in because they, they're the ones that are going to have to do it. A couple more stuff I want to run through real quick with the looking at... Um, speaking of the ASVS, there was a great write-up from Clarity about uh, a smart device, in this case, uh, what was it, a... Um, Intercom that they took apart. They did some. They they ran some firmware on a Raspberry Pi. They played around with the uh, got, got a, yet another uh, a small web server running uh, LIGHTPD running and started to do some some fun work. That basically the write up is a, is almost the entire list of the ASV coverage or the OWASP top ten of all the problems they found from admin admin to a really really clever. Uh, image-based uh, exploit that I thought was really neat to do command execution through the file name of an image. So I won't go through in details because we're getting low on time, but I think it's one of those things that it's a wonderful write-up, made me smile from start to finish, and also just made me cringe, ouch, because we still see software that ridden with, with, uh, with, with, with security problems in this day and age. Um, I wanted to comment here, mm -hmm. speaking of like building trust, right? We had the Loom example of a great way to rebuild that trust. Um, from what I took from this article, the company was contacted several times and they actually blocked their account. Like they just did not want to talk to them. So this is also a good example of what not to do as far as rebuilding consumer trust. There you go. Well, that's one of those things, especially in the IoT place, is sort of like, here are a bunch of devices, we'll dump them on the market, sell them, and support them for a year, and then walk away. And um, I don't know that that's exactly what the situation is here, but it's definitely reminiscent of such a thing in terms of just, you don't need to support something, or, or you don't if you don't want to support something, you can just walk away, and users are left with insecure, unpatchable, or unpatched uh, devices, and they bear the brunt of it. So real quick, we haven't talked about tools in a while, and I pulled up, speaking of images, I pulled up a really neat online tool from Doyensec, who I uh, watch their blog every once in a while for interesting news write-ups. And uh, Image Magic is interesting because it is a binary, does image parsing, image uh, rewriting, it can translate image from one format to, to many, many others. But it's really, it's really interesting because you can actually control through its behavior through an XML-based security policy. And that security policy uh, can help you avoid certain types. It can minimize you know, how it calls out to the internet. It can minimize uh, as well as certain types of formats that it supports and parses or doesn't part. So it's a... Uh, 
easy tool to use. Wanted just to highlight that. And just one other co comment there, talking about image handling can be a great AppSec security interview question in the sense of, if we live in a world of uh, user-generated content images, how would you secure images uploaded by your end users? And um, how would you put that into the pipeline? How do you do image parsing if you posit that image magic may have another RCE that we've seen in the past? So I wanted to mention it for those two reasons. Uh, Akira, you've got a tool as well. Yeah, Speaking oh my gosh. Things. I'm so excited by this tool, you guys. <laughs> Um, so this one is really popular. I only personally just discovered it at a conference I went to about a week and a half ago. It is called Juice Shop. Um, it is one of the web's least buggy, buggy websites. So Juice Shop is a vulnerable web application that uh, you can use to run tools against. You can try to hack into it. Um, it's a whole e-commerce site, so it's a fully-fledged website. It actually works, um, even though it's extremely insecure. And the cool thing that I'm really excited about is that it also has tutorials. Like It has little uh, walkthroughs of how to solve the puzzles of um, hacking into the site. So this is a great opportunity for, of course, I'm really huge on developer education. It's top of my mind right now because we're building an app like program at Resilia. And that's, of course, a really big part of that. But you can actually use these walkthroughs to say, for example, you teach your developers about some of the things on the OWASA 10, like you teach them about cross-site scripting. And then you can use the walkthrough for cross-site scripting on Juice Shop to show them how an attacker actually might take advantage of that uh, vulnerability and hack into the app. Um, what's more is that you can also use G-Shop as part of uh, capture the flag events. And from what I understand, you can also stand up uh, Kubernetes instance to have different uh, the, uh, different instances of Juice Shop to use for your developers um, in training for training purposes, so they don't have to actually run it on their local machine. Uh, the last thing I'll say about it that I kind of got a kick out of is that uh, if you decide to use it on Docker, there's actually uh, blocks in using some of the vulnerabilities because it can mess up your computer. So uh, I'm not totally sure on what they mean by that. I'm looking more into that because, of course, I don't want people's computers to get wrecked. Um, but yeah, it's it's a really cool tool. And there's really cute Easter eggs and stuff hidden all over it. Like, I won't read it for you, but it's it's just a delight. So definitely check out Juice Shop. <laughs> it, it is indeed fun. I think the, the, the one thing is just don't run these on your production environments. Run these vulnerable web apps in areas that are constrained and set up for developers. And as Akira noted, they're, they're wonderful for training and reinforcing the types of vulnerabilities we talk about. But we've also talked in the past, we don't need to turn developers into pen testers. We need to turn them into getting an appreciation of how these vulnerabilities are exploited, how you then can have the conversation of, well, what, how would the ASVS help us defend against this? How can we better isolate systems, do things like that? So it's definitely part of a larger picture as well as there are other larger pictures. John, take us out um, either on the tool or articles that you'd like to, to finish this up on this week. Man, I you know, we have another tool. I'm going to let folks go and, and, and find it in our show notes. I almost feel like we should save it for next week. We'll see. Um, just since we've covered so many good. What I do want to do is one of you guys, I think it might have been you, Mike, um, had the Dropbox Engineering Career Framework, mm, yes, which I thought was super cool. So, um, what this is is a website over on uh, Dropbox's github.io 
where on a left column, they've got a bunch of different, well, all pretty, I'm guessing all the engineering roles which they have in the, in the organization. So they've got software engineers, QA engineers, reliability engineers, um, security engineers, we might think about here. Um, and also I was looking at the engineering management ones, but um, you know, so then under security engineers, they've got the different levels. So I see, so ind individual contributor, one, two, three, four, five, six, uh, all the way up to principal and then an appendix. So we can click on one of these, let's say like a staff security engineer, their IC5. And I'm calling out the, the IC file, I'll come back to that in a minute. But then it goes through actually breaking down what's, what's required for this person, you know, what's the scope of their job um, in a, uh, um, almost a, um, uh, oh, come on brain. It's like, it's, they're, they're doing like a storyboard uh, method of doing this. So like I deliver multi-year, multi-term security goals. I work in areas that are, that the security strategy is not defined. I may not know the security problem before starting. And then it goes through um, what are the collaborative reaches, who should they be working with? And then their impact levers. So an example being, I demonstrate a high level of depth in a, in a particular program or product category that brings unique business value. Um, so that's sort of, you know, your starting points, your, your targets, and it goes through what are the results um, for this individual or type of individual um, impact ownership and decision-making. So for ownership, I have a sense of responsibility and obligation to act on opportunities I see across the engineering org company. So you can see what, what I'm really sort of talking through here, the way they've done this is um, really sort of structuring uh, what each of these type of individuals should be doing and should be, I'm trying to pick my words here, how they would be, what would be expected from them in, in their um, career. And, and folks, feel free to interrupt me if I'm, um, there's better ways to say this. Goes through direction and then talent and culture. So for culture, let's say communication, I tailor my message to my audience, presenting it clearly and concisely at the right attitude. Altitude, yes. Um, but. I thought what was really interesting beside this, beside allowing each um, different level in that org to figure out what they do or <laughs> not what they do, what they're responsible for. Um, and you can sort of click back and forth and see what's the difference between the IC5 and IC2. Mm -hmm. For those of you who are thinking about job hopping, this is great for interviews. Um, and, and this is sort of what I was thinking, right? Like, you know, you, you, Frequently, if you're trying to, if you're going into a behavioral style interview, when those are out there, and you're trying to figure out what question are these people going to be asking me, well, what what is the job you're applying for? What would you be doing in that job day in day out? You know, I usually tell people to think about, um, try to think like you're a manager. What questions would they be concerned about? Can you do on the job, and how would they ask those questions? What's your answer? Well, you know, what's the scope of your job? Tell me, tell me about. Oh God, I'm not even going to try and do this, but let's see. Tell me about a time when um, you went above and beyond the scope of your job. Well. I work in a small defined security problems where the security solution might not be defined. I own the implementation and then tell a story around that, right? Um, and then the interesting thing, I think for folks who are sort of head scratching and thinking about this and where they fit in, they have this for technical program managers in different areas, is if you don't know what an IC3 or an IC4, IC5 is where you fit in here, tie the information you're getting here and go over to levels.fyi. Um, and bring up Dropbox's uh, levels for a, and don't we're not caring about salary right now, right? But that's that's what the site's for. But on level side, FYI, go find the software engineer, the security engineer, whatever else. Bring up in one of the columns their Dropbox levels, and it has you know at least I've got management up right now, so in three, four, five, six, seven, and then pick up another company you're thinking about interviewing at or whatever else, and put those side by side, and you'll see how those two levels line up, and you'll get a sense of like what your possible responsibilities are at this company. So I thought it was neat, both from a career point of view, as well as also just sort of thinking about who, who am I in the world? What do I do in life? 
Yeah, thank you for highlighting that. And uh, I also wanted, under the culture, seeing collaboration and communication given, you know, pointed out as front and center as important aspects for every single level of the engineers. That is quite important. It speaks to that, uh, you know, what Josh was describing, it's department of no. Mm. You can't be a department of no, or you shouldn't be a department of no if you have good collaboration and good communication skills. One of the things I'll just add to to what, what John walked through is that I like to, going back to the IC2 level, I haven't seen under craft uh, similar frameworks like this actually speaking to the technology fluency and the threat fluency mm. in the sense that... Um, especially when you're junior or starting your career, it's a little bit harder to point to your experience in having impact and scope across a, a large organization. And they, I think part of this is a, a, acknowledging that, accommodating that, and talking about you understand either technologies used within Dropbox or technologies that are important throughout uh, common amongst any uh, uh, organizations, as well as the threats. Uh, and that goes beyond just saying you can rattle off the OWASP top 10. Perhaps you can demonstrate what you did with Juice Shop, for example. You can talk more about why the OWASP top 10 is impactful in some areas or perhaps not impactful in other areas, or even speak to the ASVS in terms of these are the flaws you've seen, but here's guidance that you would give to the generic developer about how to protect against that. And you could speak with some fluency in the sense of Python or Rust or Go or Node.js. Uh, and so those would be, I think, the, the, the additional parts I would add for the, the junior side of that career framework. Um, one thing I liked about this is underneath the craft section, um, they had these key behaviors and like Mike just pointed to, you can not only say, okay, like I have the knowledge of OS top 10, but you can start to talk about how you deployed that, um, deployed that knowledge. One thing that I've personally struggled with in my security career is knowing what technical things to start to learn next. And I think that these craft sections is a great place to start, um, especially if you are just getting started, like how I was relatively recently. Um, for example, they have like, in, in the IC2, one of the key behaviors is, my work demonstrates basic competence as a security practitioner. I apply basic principles such as least privilege and defense and death appropriately to a set of problems within my team and projects. So, if you are reading this and you don't know what defense in depth is and you don't know what principle of least privilege is, well, there's the first place to start is you need to start researching that and then start applying that um, to maybe a problem within your team. Um, so I think especially if you're looking into AppSec as a career and you need to know the basic things that you absolutely must know, I, I would agree with this list. It's not necessarily like, do you know the OS top 10? It's like, do you understand the, even below that, like, the most basic things that a security practitioner needs to know and can you apply that mindset as opposed to just like a random list now and excellent advice oh god I, I know we need to run um one last yeah. thought on there is um excuse me this can also be used by management if you have to do right job descriptions which can frequently be a pain in the butt go figure out the person on here you're looking for and then start i don't want to say copy and paste but get some uh ideas on how what should be in your jd there we go. Excellent advice from Akira and John on that. And yes, indeed, we must wrap up. So thank you, John. Thank you, Akira. Thank everyone for listening to us Join and joining us this week. We went long, but do please subscribe, hit that like button, check out the show notes. And speaking of transparency, check out Lie to You by Searsha. We'll see you next time on Application Security Weekly.